Before I uh, preach, uh, I'd like to repeat a request I made the uh, first time five or six weeks ago in my first sermon in this series, and that is, I would like your help. Uh, you know, I'm attempting to write a book on the Ten Commandments. I've written several books in recent years. I'm hoping to write a book on the Ten Commandments arising out of the sermon series. So I would like your comments. Any, if you have questions, comments, stories you think I should add, uh, illustrations that might fit, uh, talk to me in person or send me an email or else you can contact me through my website. There's a contact form that comes to, to me if you uh, contact me in that way. So please uh, give me your help and input if you would. Let's pray before we think together about God's word. Oh Lord, we've just read together in your presence some of the scriptures that deal with idolatry. Help us to think together about these themes in such a way that we, um, we come away changed a little bit, perhaps even deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul Tillich was a well-known philosopher of religion in the last generation. He had a fascinating saying about the role that religions play in cultures. He said, quote, religion is the substance of culture, and culture is the form of religion. By that, he meant that the religion of a people or of a community shapes all that happens in that person's life or in the life of that community or society. Further, he meant that if you take any normal cultural expression, whether it's art or education or architecture or even medicine, and if you look carefully at it, you will see religious themes, religious assumptions, religious motivations in it. That's good to know. He further claimed that a person's religion is what he called their ultimate concern, what was most important to that person or to that community. And that, he said, could be quite different from the formal religion. A person might go to church or synagogue every week, and yet their, formal, their ultimate concern might be quite different from their formal religion. They might, be, they might be ultimately concerned with beauty or sexuality or oneself or sports or one's nation even. One's real courage, a real concern, he said, is by dis- found by discovering where do people find the courage to face the challenges of everyday life. Everyday life is filled with uncertainties. We don't know what's going to happen. And where do we find our comfort, our courage, our strength, our hope in the face of the uncertainties of life? That, he said, is the person's real religion, their ultimate concern. Now, when I first read Tillich's book some 35 years ago, something bothered me. And that is, he didn't seem to be so concerned about what it was that people choose as their ultimate concern, their religion, as long as it gave that person or that community courage and joy and comfort to go on. The object was not too important to him. And that's where we as historic Christians disagree very, very sharply. Because we historic Christians have always said that what we choose as the object of our worship is the most important question we face. Uh, For example, the the Westminster uh, Catechism from some centuries ago said, quote, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him. Now, use the term chief end, not 
ultimate concern, but it's the same idea. And what's most important is who? It's in God. Or the, the Heidelberg Catechism, also part of our Protestant heritage, started by saying, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, the key question is not really what church to attend, but where do I find my comfort, my hope, in Jesus Christ? And this is the consideration I believe we see in the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. What's this about? God alone is to be the source, the only source, of our comfort, our hope, our meaning, our courage. And when we worship God in that way, that changes everything about our lives. It changes the whole way we do everything. That's the topic of the first commandment, I believe. Now, there's a hymn that uh, my wife and I sang often in one of the churches we were in some years ago. It had a catchy line. It said, Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. Now, I, I just quote them. You don't want to hear me sing. I, there are reasons I don't serve on the music team. But the, the words in that psalm, a hymn arise from Psalm 146. There we read these words. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and that very day their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose hope, or excuse me, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. You see, the Old Testament is very realistic about life. That life is filled with one uncertain situation after the next. And that life itself asks the question, where is your hope? Where is your help? Where is your comfort? Where do you find your courage? In God or in something lesser? In the powers of nature, in the princes, in your good friends, in yourself, where is your hope, your help, your comfort, your strength? And that question arises out of daily life. And through that, we have to give an, an, we have to give an answer. Is our hope, our help, our comfort in God or somewhere else. And this is not only to be our formal religion, this has to be our internal religion, the place where we are really wrestling with where do I find my comfort, my strength, my help. Now as we look at this commandment for a few minutes, I would like to observe three assumptions and two demands in the commandment. So first three assumptions and then two demands. The first assumption is that God is, in fact, worthy of being our, the ultimate source of our hope and comfort, that he is worthy. Now, in demanding that he be first in our lives, God is not doing something arbitrary or irrational. This comes from who he is and what he has done in creation and redemption. Before making any demands of the people here, he, said, he reminded them of, of what he had just done. He said, The Lord your God brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And as such, he was worthy of their complete trust, of being the object of their hope, the source of their comfort. Now consider what we see, even in that preamble to the commandments. We see something about the power of God. 
God was the one who did the tremendous miracles that we call the plagues, bringing the people out of Egypt. You should, if you haven't read those stories recently, you should do so to be reminded of the, what God did to bring the people out of Egypt. He turned the water into blood. He brought the frogs, the gnats, the flies. He's the one who sent great hail. He was the one who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And the people, the first time the Ten Commandments were given, they remembered that. That had happened not so long ago. And they can say, yeah, we saw that happen, we know. God is worthy of our loyalty and trust because of his power. But the commandments, there's also a reference here, an allusion at least, to the faithfulness of God. You see, before, this, roughly 400 years before this, at the time that he was dying, Joseph who had, you know, had become the prime minister of Egypt, said something to his brothers that was very interesting. He said, uh, God will surely come to your aid and will take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's in Genesis 50. Joseph saw, somehow, that the people of Israel were going to become slaves in Egypt. He saw that, he saw an ugly future ahead that would last some roughly 400 years. But that's not how the story would end. He knew the promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them a land. He knew that God would keep that promise. And when, this, when the people of Egypt, people were coming out of Egypt, that was the promise of God that was being fulfilled. God had demonstrated his power that he was worthy of their loyalty and trust. Now, we have a much, much greater revelation of God's mercy and power and grace in Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we have a far, far greater revelation of God's grace and power to us in Christ. And that should give us a greater basis, a much stronger basis in which to say, yes, God is worthy of my trust. He is worthy of being my center of everything day by day. You see, this is in fulfillment of an even greater promise than the promise that God gave through Joseph. At the beginning of history, shortly after Adam and Eve's fall, God came and talked with Adam and Eve. And the serpent was there too. And he said something very striking to the serpent with Adam and Eve listening. He said to the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head. Of course, he's thinking far into the future when Jesus would be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent by what he did in dying and then rising in victory over the grave. And this will be completed when he comes as the judge of the living and the dead. But we have here a much, much greater revelation of God's power and mercy, and faithfulness. So our response should be much stronger than that of the people of Israel. They had only seen the plagues. They had only just been rescued through the Red Sea. We have a much greater revelation of who God is like. See, day by day, we will face the question, will we or will we not trust God? Will we look to God or will we look somewhere else for our help, our comfort, our strength? And this, this question arises for us at every transition and change in life. 
for about three years ago, three years, until a few months ago, I was tested with a question. Now, to anyone else, it would seem a very, very small question, but somehow it loomed very large in my mind. Uh, my wife and I do not plan to retire in Prague, but for a, year, a couple of years we wrestled with the question, when should we retire and where? Should we move to the, back to the States a few years before we retire or after we retire? And where do we move to? Now, those are pretty small questions. Many, many people are facing much bigger questions. The people of Israel faced questions that were many, many times greater than that. They didn't know if they were going to have anything to eat or drink in the next few days. They didn't know who was likely to kill them, and they didn't know if their children had any future. They had huge problems, as do, for example, the refugees today. We see the stories of countless thousands of refugees. They face some really big questions and uncertainties. My uncertainties were pretty small. But I sometimes had a sense of dread late at night. I didn't really trust in God quite enough. Now we have the beginnings of a plan forming. So this, and my sense of dread has lifted. But I have to say with shame that really my comfort has been a little bit too much in the plan we have and not enough in God. Really, I should be finding my comfort, my hope, my strength in God, and not a plan for how we might manage our next transition. That's the way we face questions day by day that are arisen, they arise out of life, and we have to respond to them in faith or lack of faith. I remember one of the first times I read the book of Exodus. I think I was a teenager. I became quite critical of the Israelites as I was reading through the book of Exodus. You know, teenagers can be that way. They're critical of everything. And so I was reading along and thinking, why were they always afraid of the future? Didn't they see and remember what God had just done? They had seen the plagues. They had walked through the Red Sea in dry land. They had seen the water come back and destroy the armies of Egypt. That God had given them manna. Uh, what more did they want? Why were they afraid at every turn? Why were they constantly turning away from God in disbelief? Now I think, well, they, they maybe did better than I do. Uh, and I invite you to consider that question. Uh, are you doing any better than the Israelites did when they constantly turned from God and trusted in one idol or the next? Um, it may be, maybe you're Challenges you face are as big as those faced by the Israelites, but probably for most of us, they're not quite that big. Maybe our challenges are a little bit smaller. Where do we find our comfort, our hope, our courage? That was the first assumption, that God is worthy. The second assumption of this commandment, I believe, is that we are always before God. Now, the commandment says we shall have no other God before him. Uh, That might mean in place of God. Uh, I'm really not sure of the nuance of the Hebrew words there. But even if if it means in place of God, it reminds us that every decision we make, every action of our heart, is in the presence of God. Now, some of the older Christian theologians just used had a nice term to describe that. They said we lived life corum deo. Corum deo is Latin. It just means in the face of God. I like a few old Latin phrases, maybe you know that. Uh, but more, there's, some, there's a line in the Psalms that expresses it much more vividly than an old Latin phrase. 
In Psalm 139, we read these words. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the seed, see, even there your hand will hold me fast. If you and I make the choice to find our courage, our hope, our comfort in something other than God, uh, we're doing that in the presence of God. It's not like being in the presence of God is something that happens from time to time, or it's just something that will happen on Judgment Day. It's where we live our lives. We are before the face of God every day, every minute. Uh, If we find our hope, our comfort, our strength in money or in relationships, or in the princes and powers of this world, we do that before the face of God. So let's keep that in mind. A third assumption of this first commandment, and that is is that people are incurably religious. If people reject God, they do not really become somehow irreligious. That just doesn't happen. Instead, as uh, Paul points out in Romans chapter 1, they exchange the glory of God for the, the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, or reptiles. If we reject God, we almost always worship something that God has created. That's just the way people work. Now, it's a modern myth. It's been around in the West for the last couple hundred years that people can be religiously neutral, but that itself is a kind of religious myth. In fact, I would argue the opposite, that it's hard to understand what's going on in our world if we don't know that people are incurably religious, and this is true around the world. Whether we think of the latest news from the Middle East, or from India, or Nigeria, walk around the world, we can't understand what is happening in the world if we don't acknowledge that people are incurably religious, and they never stop. People always look somewhere for their help, their hope, their comfort. It would be good if not only we recognize that, but if our educators and politicians and journalists would also openly acknowledge that being religious is just a part of being a human being. Now, in the scriptures, there are a couple corollary, that I, themes that I see as corollaries of this. Perhaps you would connect it differently, but this is the way I see it. At first is that the, the thoughts of our hearts thoughts of our minds, the words on our tongue, come from the religious condition of our hearts. In Matthew 15, Jesus says, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. What is the heart? I think the heart is the center of our person where we are quietly wrestling with God. I think every person, not only us here, but our neighbors too, are quietly wrestling with God in a secret place, hardly acknowledged to themselves. That is our heart. And out of what happens in that encounter, that wrestling match with God, come our words and our thoughts. This wrestling match with God in our heart is deeper than everything else. And there's another corollary, I believe, of way that people are incurably religious. And that is that we slowly become like the object of our worship. This is a theme here and there in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 135, verse 18, we're told, 
Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. People slowly become like the object of their worship. If someone turns from worshiping the true God to worshiping something that he made, there is a reduction of the person that happens. We become a little bit less human. If people worship money, they soon start to act like a bank account. If people worship beauty, the physical beauty, soon that's all they have. Or maybe that's what the one thing that they lack. If, as many do today, people worship sexuality, that again distorts everything else, so that there's nothing else left in their lives. Worship of anything other than God tends to be, in a sense, dehumanizing. So, this, so notice this assumption that if people worship something other than God, there are consequences that occur across the entirety of their lives as people become like their object of worship. Now, let's look at the demands in this commandment. The demand is very simply, as we all see, that God demands that we avoid idolatry. And idolatry means putting anything other than God in the place of God. Whatever it is that we love most, trust most, whatever is the center of our lives, whatever is our ultimate concern, to use that language, is the object of worship. Now, in ancient Egypt, where the people were coming from, uh, the, the people of Egypt tended to worship some of the great powers of nature. For example, they worshiped the sun, the earth, and the air, and they put names on the earth and the sun and the air that sounded like personal names, and so they worshiped these dimensions of nature under a name, like some called the, the sun Ray and worshiped the god Ray. but there were other names too. The names changed from century to century. Something similar was true in ancient Egypt, uh, excuse me, ancient Greece. There they worshipped different powers of nature that they put a name on, uh, things like thunder or sexuality or fertility. But polytheism was always flexible, so people mixed and matched gods freely. And uh, it looks like as they, that the business partners across the Mediterranean world were very fond of exchanging gods, so that as business people traveled back and forth between Greek, Greek and, uh, Greece and Egypt, they would uh, exchange gods as part of doing business. And so they were mixed, so that the Egyptians also worshipped the Greek gods and sometimes vice versa. Powers of nature. The gods of Canaan were very similar. Slightly different names, slightly different rituals. There was a lot of emphasis on fertility gods and goddesses in ancient Canaan where the people were going. But generally from a distance, the gods that they were in danger of following looked similar. They were the powers of nature, powers of creation with a personal name put on them. When the people of Israel read Genesis chapter 1, one of the things they would notice is that God was the creator of all the things that their neighbors worshipped. Sometimes when I read Genesis 1, I think, oh, wow, this was maybe even designed for this, that that when this was put into final form, that it was designed to show that the neighbors of Israel were worshipping dimensions of God's good creation, things that he not only had created, but that he had declared good. I have the same impression when I read the stories of the plagues in Exodus. 
What was God using in the plagues on the people of Egypt? Well, the things he had created, and some of the things mentioned there were the very things that the people of the Mediterranean world worshipped in the different polytheistic religions. God was using their little gods to carry out his purposes to set the people free from Egypt. That's what we should notice. Anything else that we might be tempted to worship in place of God is something that God has made. And if it's good, it's because he made it good and called it good. That should shape how we feel things a bit. Uh, this had some effect. Um, they were, the, avoiding the idolatry would give them a certain distance from the people around them. This, they went together. They would keep a little bit of spiritual distance so that they would avoid idolatry, and the avoiding idolatry kept them a little bit distant from the people around them. This was a principle in the Old Testament, that they could borrow freely many things from their neighbors, but not the idols. Of course, they knew that people were trading idols all the time. Israel was not to be part of the practice of exchanging idols with their neighbors. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy 6, 14, we're told, do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. It's fine if they learned farming techniques. Fine if they learned a few other things from the people, music instruments, building styles, but not the idolatry. So it's true for us. It's fine if we learn many things from our non-believing neighbors. It's fine if we learn technology, business, medicine from our unbelieving neighbors. But we must not join in the idolatry that comes with the unbelieving world. And the idolatry of our day is a little different from the idolatry of their day. There have been some changes. Not many idol worshipers today follow the rites and rituals that went with the different varieties of ancient idolatry. But in some ways, the themes are similar. Sexuality and power and beauty and wealth are themes in idolatry and have always been. Now, another thing we should note about this command to avoid idolatry is that idolatry leads to destruction. That's why I asked Ian to read from Second, uh, Second Kings 17 this morning. Idolatry led to the destruction of ancient Israel. The destruction came roughly 700 years after they went into the land. And it was real. The people were destroyed. Many, many tens of thousands were killed. Others were taken away as prisoners of war, never to return. When I look at the condition of the Christian churches today, I'm often very troubled. Uh, I wonder, do we have a process of self-destruction going on because of idolatry in the churches? I don't know for sure. It's difficult to generalize about many, many thousands of churches around the world. But that concerns me. Do we have a process of self-destruction going on because of idolatry in the churches, just like there was idolatry in ancient Israel that led to their annihilation? The first demand we met here is negative, or not to do, to avoid idolatry. But the Ten Commandments seem designed to engage us in a process of conscious, thoughtful reflection. They're always word, all of them are worded in such a way that you kind of think, okay, um, if I'm not to do that, what am I supposed to do? And I think you can find that all of them. So what does God want from us in this commandment in a positive sense? What should we try to do? Well, really everything we've been talking about this morning, that God desires our true and heartfelt worship. I'm sure many of us have been 
interested in the story uh, in the book of John where Jesus is sitting and talking with the woman by the well in Samaria. Uh, it's a fascinating story. The woman asked Jesus a question about where they should worship and if the Jewish religion or the Samaritan religion was the right religion. And Jesus gave her a fascinating answer. And it's one that I believe builds directly on this commandment. Jesus said, The time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. Notice God is seeking true worshipers. This is really the, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Now, worshiping God is rich and multidimensional. Our English word, modern English word, worship, comes from an old English word that was worthship. Worthship meant recognizing the worth or the weightiness of whatever you were talking about. You could describe the worth of this or that, and worthship was recognizing the worth of the other. And then it just, a couple letters dropped out and became our modern English word, worship. But we do not evaluate the worth of God in the same way we evaluate, say, the worth of a car or a house that we want to, or considering buying or renting. Anything else, we sort of stand above it and evaluate it. But with God, we stand below and are being evaluated. So it's different. So our worship of God is very different than evaluating the worth of anything else. But we recognize the worth of God by recognizing the what he has done in coming to us, speaking to us in creation, and bringing about redemption for us. The real, real worship of God it means recognizing what he has done and what he is currently doing, including speaking to us through all of his created world. That's the key to worship. And modern, Martin Luther had a very important observation that helps us. He said that the Work that is demanded by God in the first commandment is faith. Faith, said Martin Luther, is the work of the first commandment. What do you mean by that? Well, really what I said a few moments ago, wherever we find our comfort, our strength, our hope, our courage, that is our expression of faith. For Luther... Faith in the first, that was required by the first commandment is trust. Trust that gives us the hope, the comfort, the strength we need. Faith is the work of the first commandment, said Luther, in such a way that there we find our courage, our strength for all the daily challenges of life. That is what faith is. So the first commandment really demands that we embrace God as the source of our comfort our strength, our courage, our hope, our help, and in the midst of all the uncertainties and transitions of life that will surely come. Now, there's a fascinating theme in the Bible that it's a little bit odd for us as children of the postmodern world. And that is the way worship in the Bible is often connected with our minds and with our bodies. I'll give one example from Romans chapter 12. Paul writes... In, and always is in view of God's mercy. Worship in the Bible almost always has the mercy or grace of God in view. So in Romans 12, Paul wrote, In view of God's mercy, 
offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's fascinating for us, that in the Bible, worship connects, worshiping God, recognizing his worth, recognizing his mercy in Christ, and a response that includes our mind and our bodies. Usually not separated, a whole response. Oops, sorry. Now, a few moments ago, I complained that uh, if people worship idols, there's a reduction in their humanity that takes place. They become like their idol, sometimes tragically. I remember many years ago, I was, when we lived in the States, I always rode the same bus to and from the university where I was studying and sat by the same people often, week after week. And there was a man who told me how he absolutely worshipped one sports team. And he arranged his whole life so that he could attend all the events of that sporting team. His budget, his job, his recreation, his vacation, everything was oriented to attending the events of that particular sporting team. What a reduced life he lived. His life was University of Iowa basketball. Nothing more. Our lives, as we worship God, should be enriched and become much, much more human. In the first philosophy class I ever took a long time ago, one of the major themes was how do we become more human? How do we become more human? And, of course, the usual answers in our world are education or the fine arts. Now, I think education and fine arts are great, but they're not really what will make us to become more fully human. You see, if we worship God properly, remember, we're made in his image. Slowly but surely, we will be transformed back into his image, back to become what he created us to be. So worshiping God properly will, in a sense, make us much more human in the sense of being all that God created us to become. The people of Israel were facing great risks, real uncertainty. They were facing danger and death. And God exhorted them to turn from the the gods of the nations around them and to fully trust in him as their God alone. That's what we need to do. John Calvin was the great French preacher of the 16th century. He had a fascinating personal Logan uh, slogan and emblem. Though it was simple, it combined art and education in the worship of God in a way that was talking about heart issues. It was a picture of a flaming hand, heart in a hand being held up to God And strangely, the motto was not in French, it was in Latin, that only a very few people in his time could read. Most of the people could not read anything. Few could read French. Only a very few of the educated elite could read Latin. He put his art and his personal slogan in Latin and said, Cor meum tibi offero, domine, prompte e sincere. My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. As he struggled with the issues of life, having lost everything he had, 
lost his wife to illness very young, lost many friends, had fled for his life many times. In the face of that uncertainty, he had found the needs of his heart met in relationship to God. He found his comfort there, but it turned from comfort for himself to a heart blazing in worship to God. What I would like us to do this morning is to conclude our worship service, to conclude our sermon, really, to be some more music yet, I believe, is to combine body and mind in worship. And so I'd like to ask those of you who can uh, to stand, and we will repeat aloud two of the slogans I have referenced this morning. They should appear in our overhead here in a moment. This is to help us internalize some of the things we have been considering this morning. So let's stand and do this as our response. Let's say this with, with courage, with trust in our hearts. My only comfort, say it aloud with me, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but that I belong, body and soul, in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> 